starting a brand new series, our first series of the year. It's called All In, and we think that it is very appropriate for January to start off well. You know, we want to start the year well. There's, there's significance to turning the calendar and starting a new year. And uh, so we want to start the year well. We want to finish well, too, but we're not there yet. We're, where we are is here at the start. So we want to start well. We're going to do that with a series this month called All In, just about being all in on Jesus. Uh, in fact, I'll start with asking you a question. Do do you want to be more hungry for God this year? Amen? Some of you might already say, I am hungry, but if, you, if you're not hungry, God can work with a desire to be hungry, to want to be hungry, and he will work with that in our lives. Maybe you're, maybe you're frustrated with your level of commitment in your faith, that you kind of feel like you kind of go in and out of, of, of strong commitment to, to being more about yourself and the things that consume you in this world. Um, I'm praying that this series will help catapult us this year into really living a life of being all in. For Jesus. I'm not talk, talking about being all in for what the church is doing and New Hope and what we're doing. We want that too, but this is about all in on Jesus because that's where it all starts for us. Uh, in fact, um, as we start having this first sermon of the year, <laughs> I haven't preached since last year. So, um, in fact, somebody told me this today after first service said that was your best sermon of the year. <laughs> I said, well, in that case, it was also my worst. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, as we start this new year, I would just like us to take a moment and just pray and invite the Lord to have his way in our life, to help us to hunger after him. So if you're new here, you wouldn't know this, but typically we will uh, read the text verse for the day and we'll pray after the text. I wanna pray before I read the text today because I want us to start off, even before we get into the word, any preaching for this year, that we would just start off the year just offering ourselves to God. So would you stand with me, please, and we'll, we'll pray. And I would even ask you if you're comfortable to do this, to do this. If you're not comfortable, that's fine too. But if you're comfortable, if you would when we pray, just hold your hands out as a, as a gesture of saying, God, I'm giving it all to you. Like, I'm giving you my life. I'm, I'm letting you have your way. I'm holding everything in my life with an open hand, Lord. I want you to come in and do your work in my heart. So if you're comfortable, just hold out your hands as we pray together. And just pray with me from your heart today. Our Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for this new year, a clean slate. God, the old is gone, the new has come. Old things are past. Lord, it is a new day. Your mercies are new. They're new every morning. But God, we also know there's a significance to a new year too. And God, we wanna be hungry for you this year. Lord, we wouldn't settle for anything less than being all in on you. Jesus, have your way in our life. Holy Spirit, come and fill us. Your word talks about filling us with the Spirit. Lord, would you come and fill us today and every day with your Holy Spirit to overflowing. God, that our love for you would just grow and grow and grow, and that we would continue to take next steps in our faith walk as we journey this life with you. God, would you do your work in our heart? Would you produce fruit in our lives through the word that is spoken, Lord? We thank you for this word today. We pray, God, that your word would produce fruit and that it would that it would glorify you and your kingdom and it would be good and fruitful for us. We ask it all in Jesus' mighty, precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Praise God, praise God. Yes, give God praise. Thank the Lord. Now that's how you start off a new year, amen? All right, well now I'm gonna read my text. So I'm gonna ask you to keep standing for just a second. And uh, my text today is out of Luke 14. These are the, this is Jesus on his... Uh, during his time of ministry, starting in verse 25, it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, everyone say in the same way. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And I, we all say a collective ouch to that verse. The title of my message today is Counting the Cost. God bless you, you can be seated. 
Thank you, Lord. I'm talking about all in this month, and today we're talking about counting the cost and what that looks like. This passage of scripture, Jesus is talking to us about counting the cost, what it takes to be his disciple. And uh, being all in is all about commitment. It speaks to commitment. And when we talk about commitment in life, not even just in our faith, but in every aspect of life, I kind of feel like there's three different kinds of people when we talk about commitment. There's first, there's the skeptics, that they're always gonna kind of wait and see when it comes to any sort of commitment, whether it's relational, whether it's career, schooling, whatever it is, they're kind of got the wait and see, they're, they're skeptical about everything and they're not going to commit until they are good and ready and no one's gonna make them commit until they are good and ready. Those are skeptics. And then, then you have ones that I'm, I'm just calling Jack because they're kind of the jack of all trades. You know, you've heard the term jack of all trades, master of none. Those that just like to, they like to have a little bit of commitment to a lot of things. They get their hands in a lot of things, they dip their toes in the water, but they kind of go in and out and they, they don't, they're not really focused on one thing, but they know a lot about a, a few things. They're kind of the jack of all trades. And then you have the all-ins, which are those that they feel like if you're gonna do something, you might as well do it with everything you got, right? And they don't understand why people don't do things that same way they do, because why would you do it if you're not gonna give everything you have? Now, one of these is not better than the other. You know, in fact, I mean, you might say all-in, that's the way to go, but you know, people that are all-in with everything, they're, they're, they tend to overcommit, they can be reckless, they can get committed to something that they never should've committed to in the first place, and so there's strengths and weaknesses for all three of these. But you also have all three of these types of personalities with commitment when it comes to our faith. And it can hinder or be an advantage or a blessing to our faith as well. The skeptic is going to be somebody that's gonna wait and see. They're gonna kind of be content to stay on the fringe for the most part. Unless they buy in, then, they're, then they are all in. But typically the, the skeptic is kind of on a perpetual uh, test drive with their faith. They're just kind of driving around, testing the waters, testing it out, knowing at any time when they decide they don't want it anymore, they could take it back to the dealership and get their, get their uh, go on with the rest of their life, right? And then you got the, the jacks, the jack of all trades, you know, they're constantly going in and out. Their, their commitment level and faith typically looks like a roller coaster. Because one minute they're like, man, I'm all in, I mean, I'm bought in, and the next minute they're kind of down and struggling and having a hard time, and your faith can be very fickle for people like that. And then, of course, you have those that are all in, the people that have given up everything for Jesus, and they don't understand why everybody doesn't give up everything for Jesus, right? And that's, that's really good in our faith, but that can also even be reckless too, because we can, we can operate under assumptions if we're not careful. But we are called to be all in on our faith, and you might think, well, is that really that big of a deal to be all in? Well, my text verse would convey that it is. The words of Jesus himself tells us that it really does matter. In fact, this text verse these verses, these words of Jesus are probably the most ignored in all the church because they're hard words to receive. What he's saying are some pretty audacious things. He's telling us what our level of commitment needs to look like and that it's not just to be this level of committed, it's not just for the, the pastors, it's not just for the evangelists, it's not just for the, the zealots and the radicals, it's for the disciples. He says, if you want to be my disciple. Now listen, there are a lot of different roles in the church and in, in Christendom, right? Not everybody's called to be a pastor or an evangelist and all those things. There's a lot of different roles for all of us, but one thing we know is that they all fall under the same heading, disciple. Every one of us. If we are a follower of Jesus, we're a disciple. So this verse, this text that I've read is for each and every one of us. That we are called to be uh, all in, counting the cost in our relationship with Jesus. In fact, he says here, and I'll, I'll list a few of these out. He says, if you don't, you can't be his disciple if you don't, one, hate your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Kind of goes for the jugular right at the start, right? Now, obviously, this isn't what he means literally. He is the author of family and wanting us to be in relationship with one another. He doesn't want us, he doesn't want us to hate the people that are closest to us that we love the most. Because then he also goes on to say that you have to hate your own life. Again, we know he doesn't want us to hate our life. He's the author of life. He's the one that gave us life. So of course he doesn't want us to hate it. What he's saying here is that our allegiance, our level of commitment to our God is supposed to be so much greater than any other commitment we have that this over here almost looks like hate. That's how much we're committed to our God. That's a pretty audacious claim that Jesus is making, isn't it? But he doesn't apologize for it. In fact, he takes it another level, I think, as he continues on. He says, next, you can't be my disciple if you don't carry your cross and follow me, okay? 
And that's not talking about a literal cross, walking around with it or wearing a necklace with a cross on it. He's talking about carrying the cross. The cross is a symbol of death. He's saying, your life isn't your own. Yeah, I, I bought your life. I purchased it with a price is what Corinthians tells us. And so our life isn't our own anymore, so we are called to lay down our life for him. And then just in case he missed anything, he caps it off by saying, give up everything you have. And if you don't give it up, you cannot be my disciple. Now he's not saying here we have to give everything away that we own, that we're just supposed to live poor with no possessions or anything like that. It's just talking about our level of commitment, that we hold everything we have with an open hand. Whatever we have, I hold it with an open hand. My kids, my marriage, my money, my job, my career, my possessions, my house, my cars, everything I have, I hold it with an open hand saying, Lord, I'm giving it all to you. If you wanna allow me to keep it, be a steward of it, that's great. But nothing I have is off limits because I love you so much more than I could ever love any of these other things. That's what Jesus said it looks like to be a disciple of his. And he is not apologizing. It's not like he's sitting there saying, you know, listen guys, if it were up to me, I wouldn't do this, but my heavenly father says I have to, so if you got a problem, take it up with him. No, he's owning it. And the bottom line is he's saying, listen, I paid it all. I'm paying everything. He hadn't at this point yet where he spoke these words, but he knew what he was about to do. He says, I'm paying it all for you, so if you wanna be my disciple, I expect you to give it all for me too. And it's not just because I did this, so now you have to do that. He's, doing, he's saying that because he also knows the only way to live this life of faith is to live all in. Because all other ways of dipping our toes in or being skeptical or half-heartedly serving God, all that does is hurt us. That's all it does. It hurts us in the long run in our faith. In fact, um, I was thinking, as far as an analogy for this, you know, when I was in middle school a, century, a lifetime ago, <laughs> um, I played football for our school for a couple of years. And uh, I, I would have kept playing, but I hated practice with the fires of hell. I hated it. You know, if you ever played organized football, you know what I'm talking about. Practice was so horrible. The games were wonderful. Wearing the cool jersey and, you know, everybody cheering for you, but practices were mm, something. So I only made it a couple of years. And I, I played on defense mostly, and our coach would tell us, he would say, you need to go hard every play. Every play, and when you're, when you're the guy that's about to tackle the guy with the ball, you hit him hard. And it wasn't to try to hurt him, wasn't to try to do any damage, he was saying you gotta go aggressively because if you go haphazardly or half-heartedly or so-so or just kinda casually, what's gonna happen is you're gonna get trucked. And you're gonna get hurt. Because that other guy coming at you, he's coming at you as hard as he can go. And he's looking for guys that are gonna try to do a little arm tackle or something. You put your shoulder in and you hit him. Because if you don't, you actually can have the tendency of getting hurt. Those that get hurt in football, a lot of times are the ones that are kinda going at it half-heartedly. I mean, you, you still get hurt going all in, obviously, but I know in, in, the, in the peewee football, in the middle school football, it was about making sure you were aggressive and doing, uh, going at it as hard as you could go at it. And it's the same way in our faith. If we approach our faith haphazardly and, and stuff happens in life, what happens? We get hurt and we recoil. Because, well, why did God allow that? Well, part of the problem is you're not all in, so you're not really getting his perspective you're not really having an understanding of the situation or you're not really trusting him because if you're not going all in, you're, you're, a lot of what you're doing in your faith is trying to figure out what you can get for yourself out of your faith. But if we go all in, then when the stuff happens in life, which it still will, we're not, we're not shielded from every bad thing that could happen in life because we're all in on Jesus, but we have the perspective that God wants us to have. Keeps us from getting hurt and wounded spiritually as much as many others that would do it half-heartedly in their faith. Now listen, I'm not here to judge because we all struggle with this, okay? I can be all in, I, I, I feel like I'm as all in on Jesus as I've ever been in my life and I can be all in and I can be all out, well not all out, but I can be about myself very quickly. I can go in and out of that. Thank God I got, he convicts me quickly and I feel like I've reset quickly but that's a struggle for each and every one of us. But I can tell you that one of my greatest passions of pastoring this church is to help lead people to a life of being all in on Jesus. I mean, that matters to me more than just about anything else other than people getting saved, is people that, love, that, that are Christians going all in and living all in for them because I know the damage that's done when we don't do it with all of our heart. And it's interesting because you know, church gurus will tell, will tell you, and I, I, you know, I get all the emails and I do the, the conference calls and the Zoom meetings with church guru guys that try to tell you what to do in church work, and a lot of them will tell you, listen, if you wanna grow your church fast, 
focus most of your energy telling people what God's gonna do for them. Not as much energy telling people what God expects from them. Because people wanna hear what God does for them. I do too, we all do. We wanna hear what God's gonna do for me if I love him, right? And there's an aspect of that that's real and that's good. But we gotta spend a lot more of our time talking about what God expects from us too. Because I don't really believe that our church wants to hear just what God's gonna do for you. That's a great part of it, but I believe we wanna be challenged. We wanna be encouraged and, and, and helped along in our faith walk to love God more. Not just to see what God can give us more, but to really look, see what it looks like to live this life of faith. Because you know, the narrow road that Jesus talks about, the narrow road, that's the all-in road. The other road is the all-out road or the check-in road. Instead of the all-in, the check-in. Right? When I was a kid, I remember going to my neighbor's houses. My, my, neighbor, my next street over from my house had a, a lot of houses with kids that were my age. So in the summer, I'd spend all day over there. And my mom would just tell me, listen, just come home for lunch, get some food for lunch, you can go back, and then be home at dark for dinner. And I just thought she just wanted to make sure I got food. But now as an adult, I look back, I realize what she was really doing was just wanting me to check in. Just wanna make sure you're alive. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then. So me coming home every couple hours reassured my mom, okay, he's not dead and uh, his skin's all intact for the most part, you know, so we're good. But I would just check in. And so oftentimes we do this in our faith where we just kinda wanna check in with God. You know, like, God, I'm okay, I'm gonna do my thing over here, and if I need you, I'll, if I skin my knee, God, I'll be home. If I get hungry, I'll be home. If I need some help, if I need you to fix something in my life, I'll make sure I come talk to you. But other than that, I kinda got it figured out, so I'll check in as I need to. But God says that's not the approach that we're to take in our faith. He doesn't want the check-in people, he wants the all-in people. Jesus is very, very clear about being all-in in our life. Jesus tells us to count the cost. He says consider, count the cost. If you're going to be my disciple, and counting the cost, it really boils down to you're just saying, you're asking yourself, do I have what it takes to follow through with this commitment? Can I, can I step into this situation and, and meet the requirements to be successful? That's what counting the cost is. For instance, if you're gonna buy a house, right? If any of you that have bought a house, you probably sat down and figured up your bills and your expenses and your income to see how much you had left to see how much you could afford for a mortgage, right? And then you purchase a house based on what you feel like you can afford. You count the cost. But even if you don't, the bank will do it for you, right? The bank's gonna count the cost. The bank's gonna, if you wanna get a mortgage from the bank, what, they're gonna ask you for your tax returns, your bank statements, any other debt you have, your income, pay stubs, how much you spend on coffee every week, what kind of shoes you wear. I mean, they wanna know everything, right? The paperwork's endless when you wanna get a mortgage. That's because the bank is wanting to make sure that you're gonna be able to pay back this money they're gonna give you for that house. Because they wanna count the cost. And we understand that, right? Because we know, hey, the bank's got skin in the game. Of course, they're gonna do that, right? So we understand it in the natural, but when it comes to our faith, we can sometimes get almost offended by the idea or the concept of counting the cost to be a follower of Jesus. But these are the words of Jesus. These aren't my words. These are actually his words. And here's the thing, church. Earlier in this chapter in Luke 14, my text verse, earlier in the chapter, God talks about, or Jesus talks about salvation. He gives the illustration of the master of the house sending out invitations to bring people in for his feast and nobody wants to come so he sends the servant out, which is Jesus, and says, hey, you go into the streets, you go into the ditches, you go wherever you gotta go, I want my house full. And that's a, that's a story of the gospel. of You and me, we were the ones in the ditches, in the streets that didn't deserve to come into the feast with the master but the servant came and gave us the invitation so we could come. So salvation is about responding to the invitation of God for our life, right? Amen, I mean, we don't deserve the salvation. He came and got us, he came and did what he needed to do to invite us into this feast with the master. That's beautiful. So the invitation is there, but then in the same chapter, Jesus is very quick to say, okay, but if you accept this invitation, you gotta count the cost, because this is what he's gonna be looking for. To get into the house is very simple. It's very non-evasive in our life in a lot of ways, but to, to get in the house, stay there and be part and be the disciple, the pupil of the master 
is a totally different story. And ultimately what it boils down to is are we gonna live a life willing, or are we, gonna, are we able and willing to live a life where we are committed to obedience to our God? That's what it boils down to. Can we obey the, the mandates of our God? The, the, can, we follow, can we live up to the expectations of our God of living, living a life of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus? Now listen, I'm not talking about getting into works here, that we're earning salvation, that we're earning anything from our God, okay? It's never about earning anything when it comes to our relationship with him. But Jesus is very clear that he, he's the one that pursues the relationship with us, but then we have to count the cost of what it looks like to be one of his followers. And we need to understand that and, and, and be real with ourselves about it. Because if we love God, we will be obedient. And the opposite is true. You can't be obedient if you don't love God. It's not possible. You will always be obedient to what or who you love. Who you really, really love, you will, obedience is the evidence of that love. Commitment, okay, I know obviously you love your kids, you don't obey your kids, so don't, don't take me literally on this. I'm talking about a, a level of commitment. You're always gonna be committed to what you really love, and if you're committed to God, there will be obedience there. In fact, John, 1 John tells us that if you say you love God, but you keep on sinning, you don't really love God. Because obedience is, is the evidence that you love God. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 14, or John 14, excuse me, in verse 23, he says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. It's just really that simple. And Jesus isn't giving us an ultimatum here. He's not saying, you better do this. He's doing it as a declaration. That listen, if you really do love me, you will obey, because here's the thing, church. If you love God, obedience is a joy. Think about that. If you love him, obedience is a joy. I don't look for how much I can get away with in my faith. You know what I do? I look for how much I can give to him. I go to my God all the time and I say, God, what else is there in my life that is keeping me from your best for me? Whatever it is, I don't care what it is. It doesn't have to be a sin. If TV is keeping me away from you, God, take it out of my life. Anything. If there's anything, if my wallet is keeping me from you, take it out of my life. You're gonna have to figure out a way to feed me, God, but do what you gotta do. Because when we really love him, obedience is a joy. We're not begrudgingly staying away from the sins that easily entangle us. We're looking to stay away from them. We're having the heart of John the Baptist that says, I have to decrease so he can increase. Anything in me. When the Bible talks about us decreasing and about us staying away from the things that entangle us, not all of it's even sin. It's just anything that would keep us from God's best, from us really living a life, pursuing him in our life. And parents, this is actually, this is good advice for parents. Like, when we, when we raise our kids, it's easy to want, like, you want your kids to, to do the things they're supposed to do, right? We teach them the Ten Commandments, we teach them how they're supposed to live and things they should do and things they shouldn't do, and that's all fine and good. But we have to be careful not to just teach kids the, the rules of Christianity, right? Because then they just do what you ask them to do, but they do it kind of begrudgingly because they feel like they're having to miss out. What we need to do is teach our kids what it looks like to love God. Because when we love God, obedience is a joy. So if we emulate loving God, if we display that for them and teach them what it looks like to actually love God, then the, the not sinning part will become more of a joy for them because it's a joy to obey our God when we love him. So I wanna give you a couple things here quickly. The, uh, the cost of obedience, okay? Because we have to count the cost, as Jesus said. At the end of the day, counting the cost to be a disciple is about obedience. So being obedient to God, there's a cost to us. And I wanna give you a couple things today that I think will, will help you to take from here practically. And the first cost of obedience is that we have to trade indifference for commitment. Because anytime we wanna, we wanna obey our God, we wanna live for God, we're gonna have to trade something because there's, there's a lot of us that is in, in, in contradiction to who God is and what he would call us to be. So we have to start by trading our indifference for, our, for commitment. This starts with our attitude. The attitude of indifference, the attitude of apathy. We have to give that up to, to have the committed relationship with him. So the question today is, are you committed or are you indifferent? 
I would say most of us, our default on some level is to be indifferent in our faith. I think it's something we, I know it's something we all have to deal with. We all have to struggle with in our life at times. Especially, well I don't know if it's especially, but definitely in society today, there's so many things demanding our time, our attention, our passion, our interest, our motivation. There's so many things in life that demand all of that. It's so easy to put faith on the back burner or to at least kind of have that check-in faith that I was talking about where, okay, I'm doing, oh, now I need something. Oh, here, God, remember me. There's so many other things that it's easy for us to be indifferent. And the irony of all that is that if the last two years has taught us anything, if it's taught us anything, it is that there is nothing in this world that is stable. There's nothing this world can offer us that is worthy of our commitment over our commitment to Jesus. Nothing. As a Christian, there is absolutely nothing that cannot be taken, nothing that cannot be shut down, nothing that cannot be turned into chaos, nothing. The only thing that doesn't change, that doesn't have to change, or that doesn't have to be chaotic or inconsistent is our commitment to Jesus. That's it. So if there's anything we've learned over these two years, it's that he deserves our commitment, not just because he deserves it because of who he is, but that's the only place, he is the solid rock on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand, all of it. Doesn't matter how great it seems. And the lie that we can often get wrapped up in in our own life is that the commitment level isn't that important. As long as I give God something, he'll be happy. As long as I give him something, he'll be happy. God wants me just to at least acknowledge him and, and you know, have a faith and, and say I'm a Christian. As long as I give him something, as long as I give him parts of my life, God will be happy with that. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. And it's in complete contradiction to my text verse. And when you think about it, you, go, you just think through the word. I was thinking about this this weekend, and in 30 seconds I thought of four things, four people, situations where that disproves that. First of all, you got Cain in Genesis. Cain brought something. He brought a sacrifice. It was not pleasing to God. And you know what happened from there. Uh, the Israelites, the whole Old Testament is a story of how, about, about how the Israelites brought God something, but wouldn't give them their hearts, right? The Pharisees, they brought God something. They were very religious. They were bringing God something. And then I, and I thought about the church in Laodicea that's mentioned in Revelations 3. They brought God something, but they get a really, really harsh rebuke, one of the most harsh rebukes in all the Bible. In Revelation 3, 15, this is, these are the words of Jesus to the church in Laodicea. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So the church in Laodicea was giving him something. They're riding the fence. And they're dipping their toes on both sides of the fence, dipping their toes in the water on both sides. They were giving God something. He didn't say you're an abomination and you're far from God. He's saying you're riding the fence. And he says, because you're doing that, you're making me sick. That word there means literally like vomit. He wants to vomit them out of his mouth. He's saying your level of commitment is not matching my level of commitment. And that is unacceptable to our God. God is not just okay if we just give him something. And it's a choice that we have to make, church. It's a choice that we make. As followers of Jesus, are we going to be all in on our relationship with him? Because we all are committed and serving someone or something. In fact, I love the story of Joshua, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. You know, Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, but didn't get to take them into the promised land. Joshua was actually the one that took them into the promised land and they went in, they conquered the lands, they were divvying up the lands to the different tribes, and it's the end of Joshua's life, and he pulls the leaders of Israel together to give him one final speech before he dies. And he's talking to them about God's faithfulness and how good God was to them, what he's done, he's telling them, don't forget what he's done. And then he gives them this admonition that many of you have heard this verse in Joshua 24, 15. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, because we all serve someone, 
whether the gods of your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We love that verse, don't we? I love declaring the last part of that verse. Me and my house, absolutely gonna serve the Lord. But you know what Joshua's saying here? He's saying, just do something. Make a choice. He's saying here, don't ride the fence, guys. Don't ride the fence, which to which, you know, thousands of years later, Jesus is reiterating in Revelation saying, don't ride the fence. Don't be lukewarm. Joshua's saying, listen, if you're gonna serve the gods of the Amorites, do it, but just do something. Serve something. Well, then for us as Christians, we look at that and go, well, duh, that's not an option. We're never gonna serve other gods. We're never, you know, we're not gonna serve money and, and power and fame and fortune, all these other things that everybody else serves. We're not gonna serve that. And Joshua's saying, well, then there's only one other choice. You serve God. You either serve him or you don't. But get off the fence, choose something. And then we hopefully would respond like Joshua. As for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord God Almighty. Praise God. Choose and commit. We also have to trade our ignorance for knowledge. It's a cost we pay for obedience. Some might say ignorance is bliss. Sometimes it is, but not in faith. It is absolutely not bliss in our faith. And if we're really gonna be a disciple of Jesus, we have to know him. We cannot be ignorant of the things of God. And I know a lot of times we think that the less I know about God, the more he'll just fill in the gaps for me. That's what he'll do, you know, it doesn't matter. I don't, I don't need to know the word. I, I just need to, you know, hear, I, I, my pastor's on Instagram and I hear 20 second sermons and you know, that's the word I get for the day. And as long as I know a little something and I know some Christianese talk, then I'm okay. God will fill in the rest. That's very dangerous thinking. We are not called to be ignorant. We are not called to just assume God's just gonna work everything out for us as long as I say I love God and I know a few worship songs. That's not the heart of God for any of us. He calls us to be all in and he calls us to love him not just with our heart and our emotions but also with our mind. In fact, the greatest command that Jesus gives in Matthew 22 Verse 37, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your brain. Praise God, we don't have to check our brains at the door when we become Christians. Hallelujah. I know, I, there's, this, there's this sometimes, this undercurrent sometimes in the church, not this church, but in the church where you kind of feel like, you know, you can't be too intellectual or smart or you don't really love God. Nothing could be further from the truth. You can't love the Lord your God with all your mind if you're ignorant of who he is. We're not called to be ignorant. And ignorance is not a put down. That's not a derogatory term. It just literally means uninformed. It just means not having knowledge of the situation. And you know, our brains are like computers in a lot of ways where you only can put out what you put in. And I know some of you would say, well, what about the supernatural? Well, I believe in the supernatural with all my heart. I believe it, I've experienced it. I believe in words of knowledge. I believe in supernatural wisdom and discernment and prophetic words. I believe in all of that. God does all that, there's no question about it. But to, to just rely on that every day of your life is lunacy, right? Because in the grind of our daily life, the, what, what feeds us is our knowledge. It's, it's, it's consuming it's meditating on the word. We can't, we can't know God, we can't be all in on Jesus if we don't know who he is. Imagine going into a relationship with somebody and agreeing to marry them without knowing anything about them. Eh, it'll all work out. She's cute. You'd be considered a fool, right? But we, can, we wanna go all in on a relationship with Jesus when, I mean, if all you get from the word is, is what you hear on a Sunday morning from me or from whoever is up here, Man, you're, you're starving to death. We gotta feed our minds. Jesus said, love me with all of your mind. Love me with your mind. And, and, and church, I know that so much of our frustration in our faith comes from ignorance. It really does. It comes from not understanding the character of God or the heart of God or just even understanding who he is because we're not in his word enough. You know, there's a, it's an epidemic in the church, the Bible illiteracy in the church. And listen, I'm not, I'm not here to beat you up, I'm not, but I'm also not here to coerce you or try to give you cute anecdotes that make you wanna read your Bible because I don't believe there's longevity in that. 
You know, to come in here and say, oh, it's New Year's, guys. New Year's resolution, let's read through the Bible this year. Okay, I just don't think there's a lot of fruit that comes from that because I don't believe there's a lot of longevity in that. I don't, I don't disparage anybody that wants to do that. I think that's great. In fact, I've shared when I was 18, I did it, and it changed my life. It was a New Year's resolution, but it was the Lord leading me to do that too. So it was a different situation than just trying to coerce you. I can tell you, I know that many of us struggle with wanting to read our Bibles, okay? I know. It's very real. Life is so busy, it's so crazy, it's so hard to be dedicated to it. It's like exercise, like, you know, I wanna exercise, but man, first thing I know, the day's over and I'm exhausted, I'm not gonna go exercise, you know? It's the same thing with exercising our mind and the word of God. But here's the thing, okay? You still have access to your heavenly Father through prayer. You can ask him to give you a hunger for his word. You can beg him to give you a hunger for his word. Plead with him on your knees. Say, God, I don't like reading it. Can you please help me? You can be honest with your God. He knows anyway. There's nothing hidden from him, the Bible tells us. So just be honest with him. But you can't, you can't know him to the level that you may even want to know him unless you know him. This is what he gives us. We have an incredible privilege of having his word on paper that we can read. And I really, I really wanna encourage you in that today. His word is life. His word is life. And I've read through this Bible more times than I can count, but it never fails. I, at least twice a week when I'm reading, I'll read something and go, I've never seen that before. I've read stuff in my Bible that I thought I never saw before and I already had it highlighted. <laughs> like, man, Joy's going through highlighting my Bible. Something about how you treat a wife, I guess. I don't know. No. But I mean, it's just, oh, it's fresh. And there are days I read it and I'm like, mm, just kind of getting through it. Can we just be honest? That's just how it is some days. But I'm committed to it. And there are days that it just blows my mind too. And those make all the other ones worth it. So pray and ask God to help you to trade your ignorance for knowledge. And third and finally, we trade convenience for sacrifice. If you thought the rest of this message was hurting your feelings, this one's really gonna hurt. You know, none of us like to be inconvenienced, right? I don't know anybody that says, oh yeah, inconvenience me, that's, that's what I've been looking for, that's what I woke up today hoping for, right? Nobody likes it. In fact, we live our lives based on convenience in many ways. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we all like drive-throughs. We like remote controls. We like one-stop shops. We like next day delivery. We like face ID on the phone. That's a good one, by the way. Nothing better, I don't have to type anything in. I just gotta have my face on it. I can look at anything on my phone, that's sweet. We like the conveniences, right? And that's a, that's a, it's fine, it's a good thing, but we can get so caught up inconvenience in our life that we can convince ourselves that the gospel is convenient. And I can tell you today, the gospel is not convenient. Now, there's aspects of the gospel that are convenient. The initial part, you getting the invitation to go into the house, that's the most convenient thing that could ever happen to you, ever. And that's beautiful. But from that moment when you accept that invitation and you walk into that house of faith, from that moment on, it's a war. It's a war here and here. We battle against principalities, against powers of this world. We also battle against our own flesh. So it's a war, and there, it is inconvenient. The, 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 the precepts, the principles, the tenets of the word of God, many of them in our life are inconvenient. Now I know it sounds like I'm contradicting myself because I just said a minute ago that obedience is a joy when we love God. It doesn't mean it's convenient, right? I mean, there have been times that, that, that the Lord has prompted me and joy to when we were in business to give money away to places and sow seed into other ministries and things like that, and, and even here, and, and for missions and things like that, that, that we did, it was, it was a joy to do it, but it was still inconvenient. Took money out of our account, right? So, but the, the gospel is going to be inconvenient in our life, so much about it. You know what, it's inconvenient to take up my cross and follow Jesus. It's inconvenient to put other people's needs ahead of my own. It's inconvenient to unconditionally forgive people. It's really inconvenient to love my enemies. It's inconvenient to bless those that persecute me. It's inconvenient to not yell at inconsiderate drivers on the road. 
That's an easy one, but still inconvenient. It's inconvenient to stay on the sidelines, or to not stay on the sidelines, I should say, in this life of faith. There's so much about this gospel that is inconvenient for us because Jesus disrupts the norm in our life. Because the norm in our life is about who? This guy, right here. That's what the norm is. So Jesus disrupts that when he comes into our life and into our situation. And as much as we wanna love Jesus and be committed to God, there's still this, this toxic comfort zone that we can live in sometimes with our own dysfunction. We can get used to it. And we don't want Jesus to really disrupt it sometimes because we don't know what it's gonna, how it's gonna affect our life. And I give a story, a situation of that in, in all three of the synoptic gospels, there's a story of the two demoniacs, the two guys possessed by demons that were terrorizing this town that they lived in, and it says that the people couldn't even go in that direction where those guys hung out because they were so aggressive, they'd have to go around, and it was a mess. And Jesus comes upon these guys in his ministry, and he delivers them both from these demons. And this is the one where he sends the demons into the herd of pigs. Many of you know the story, the pigs go down a hillside and go into the lake and drown, right? Incredible testimony of how these two guys had been completely set free. People say that there was probably about 2,000 pigs in that herd, it says it was a large herd. That's a lot of pigs. So for 2,000 demons and 2,000 pigs and two guys, that's a lot of demons. Incredible miracle, right? Documented in the word of God. The people in this town were so excited when they heard that these guys were set free, let's see how they responded. Matthew 8, 34, it says, the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Man, that's gratitude for you, right? No good deed goes unpunished. And you look at that and you think, what in the world was wrong with those people? Why would you want him to leave? Are you kidding? I would think I'd be there going, uh, well, that was pretty cool. Uh, Jesus, I got a few other things. Can you come over here and do this too, right? Because we see it from a bird's eye view, we see it with a different perspective. But in this situation, first of all, these people, it says, one of, one of the gospels says that they were afraid. Obviously, that was probably a terrifying thing. But he also inconvenienced them because they just lost 2,000 pigs, too. It was, I'm sure it was a poor town. That was probably a good source of their wealth. This wasn't just like six pigs sitting there that jumped into the lake. This could have been many of their people's livelihood, the people that lived in that town. And so he was inconveniencing them. So they were more content to have their dysfunction and have to go around this area where these two demon-possessed guys were than to have Jesus come in and disrupt it. And you know what, we could say all day long that that was ridiculous, they should have never done that, but we do it all the time. We love the convenient Jesus, but when he gets too inconvenient, we tell him to leave the town. We do it. It looks different, but that's exactly what we will do because Jesus will inconvenience us in our life. It's to make it better, it's to make the situation and draw us more into him and more like him, but sometimes that's not what we want. We just want the convenience in our life. And it's to give up the convenience factor is about living a life of sacrifice. Having an attitude all the time that my life is not my own. Jesus, I live this life for you. And to be willing to sacrifice whatever he says, whenever he says, no questions asked, without a guarantee of seeing the fruit from it. I know a couple of times specifically the Lord told me and Joy to, to give exorbitant amount of money, money away back when we had our business and, and could do that kind of thing. And, both times that I'm thinking of, I don't know what the fruit of that was to this day. And this is 10, 12, 14 years ago. To this day, I don't know the fruit of that. I haven't seen it. But I, that's not my problem. That's not God's responsibility. I can't shake my fist at God and say, God, I was obedient. No, I don't, I haven't even seen what that did. How did that do anything for your kingdom? It doesn't matter. It's about being obedient, about being about willing to sacrifice for him, even if he wants to inconvenience you in your life. Because that's what he calls us to do. And you know, there's some things about sacrifice that we get. You know, God tells us we have to sacrifice. You know, you, you walk away from certain things when you live this life of faith. We understand giving, giving up drunkenness or you know, adultery or abuse or stealing things. We get that because frankly, for most of us, that's not a big sacrifice anyway, but it's also something we understand because it hurts others. But there's things God will have a sacrifice. Sometimes it doesn't hurt anybody. It's not even a sin. It could actually be a good thing, but if God says, I want you to do it, we do it. That's the life of being all in with Jesus. And I was reminded of a story from the Old Testament that was like that, where God asked Saul, the king of Israel, to do something that didn't really make any sense. 
So Saul was king and God came to him through the prophet Samuel and said, hey, I'm judging the Amalekites because the Amalekites were kind of a nasty group of people and they'd done a lot of harm and God was judging them. And he said, I want Saul, you to take the army in, completely destroy them. Don't keep anything, destroy everything. God said, I want men, women, children, infants, animals, everything destroyed, nothing taken. Because it was normal in a, in a war like that, in a battle, that if you had good plunder, you could take it and bring it back with you. That was kind of the soldier's payment for being a soldier. But in this situation, God said, I'm judging them, and I, everything they have is cursed. I don't want you to keep any of it. So Saul goes into battle, defeats them, but he didn't do what God said. In fact, in uh, 1 Samuel 15, 9, this is what Saul did. It says, Saul and the army spared Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. He kept it. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And sounds reasonable, doesn't it? That he would do that. Like, well, you know, this, why would we kill off the fat and calf and, and all these animals? Because, you know, that's how these, these peoples would increase their wealth. When they would defeat another people, they would take the wealth that they had, which was their livestock. It just made sense that the Israelites would do this and keep it. But Saul disobeyed the word of the Lord. And when Samuel came back after the battle and heard the sheep and the calves and all that, he rebuked Saul. And long story short, if you read the story, you see that Saul actually was judged by God because of this. The throne was taken from him and he was actually killed because he was disobedient to God. And you know what's crazy about it? If you read, I don't remember exactly where it says where Saul was killed, but the person that ran him through, ran his sword through him to finally kill Saul was an Amalekite. So it came back to bite him. Not only that, uh, Haman from the story of Esther, where the, the man that was trying to destroy all the Jews at that time, he was a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amorites or Amalekites. So see, Saul didn't understand, it didn't make sense to him that we would destroy all this good stuff, but it didn't matter because God said to destroy it. And if God says to do it, you don't ask questions. Sometimes we have to sacrifice things that might even be good in our own eyes, but God has his own plan, God has his own thoughts that are higher than ours. We have to trust that he's sovereign, and when we're all in on him, we know that when he encourages us, admonishes us to do something, we do it. We surrender, we, we give to him what is his, and we trust him. And you know, we can roll our eyes at Saul all day and say, man, why did he do that? But it's something we all struggle with too. And we justify it. Because Saul actually tried to justify it. He tried to tell Samuel, well, we, uh, uh, he was trying to you know, cover his tracks. He said, why well, save these animals so we could do a sacrifice to the Lord? Which was a lie, that wasn't what he was gonna do, but he knew he was in trouble. So he just tried to justify what he was doing. Let me tell you today, church, any sacrifice we make for God is better than any convenience we could ever have. Without a question. Even if you don't see the fruit of it today or tomorrow, sacrificing for him is always, always gonna pay dividends at some point in our life. You may not see it till after you die. The, the writer of Hebrews tells us there were people in the faith that didn't see the answer to their prayers to, before they died. It doesn't matter, it doesn't mean that God didn't answer, it doesn't mean that God wasn't there and with them. Thank the Lord, hallelujah. All right, will you stand with me and I'll close. The question is today, church, are you all in? Have you counted the cost of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus? Because if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian today, you are, you are a disciple of his, you are a pupil, a student of Jesus. And his words are very clear to us that there is a cost to consider to follow him. And I pray for us for this year, for 2022, that this wouldn't just be a New Year's thing, that this would be a lifelong thing, that we would just set the foundation today, that whatever areas of our life we may have held back from him, that we would give those over to him, that we would continue to remind ourselves to live our life for him and not for ourselves, and just trust him that he can do that work in our hearts because he's the one that's gotta do it in our heart. If we just wanna do it because it sounds like a good thing to do and maybe you're inspired today, I'm not sure that the fruit will be long lasting, but if he does the work in our heart, that changes everything. So let's pray together. I just encourage you to respond to this prayer in some way, just pray with me or kneel at your seat or lift your hands.
which is a sign of solidarity with our God. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today that your word is life. Your word is truth. Lord, that text today is kind of a hard word to hear, especially on the first Sunday of the year. But God, I also know from experience, as many of us do in this room and many of us listening, that going all in is the only way to really live this life of faith. That the other ways, the, the half-hearted or the skeptic, is just a recipe for misery. So God, we wanna be all in on you today. Today, Lord, we give ourselves to you. God, we're trading. We're trading our ignorance today for knowledge. Lord, would you give us all a hunger for your word in the name of Jesus, God? Would you put a desire in our hearts to know you more than we wanna know anything else? More than we wanna know anything about the news, anything about our sports teams, anything about our jobs, anything about anything, Lord, that we would wanna know you more than any of it. God, that you'd give us a hunger for your word that would come from deep inside, Lord. Not because we're coerced, not because we wanna make a New Year's resolution, but because you are stirring something up in us. God, would you stir us for your word, Lord. We do not wanna be a Bible illiterate church. We wanna be a Bible knowledge church that is on fire for you, God. Lord, we believe you've called us to impact this society, this community. We cannot do it if we do not know you. And we cannot know you if we don't know your word. So Lord, stir it up in us. Stir it up, God. Stir it up in each one of our hearts, Lord. Give us a passion for you, God, that nothing else in this world will do. Nothing will do. Hallelujah. We praise your name, Jesus. Do your work in our lives, Lord. Where we have fallen short, God, we thank you that your grace is sufficient. Mm. That your mercies are new every morning, but not even just every morning, they're new every minute. Lord, we all fall short, we always will, until we see you face to face. But God, we're thankful today that we can come into your presence, we can come into your throne room boldly because of what you've done for us. And Lord, we do that today, and we come boldly asking you to do a mighty work in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, where we've been apathetic, where we've been indifferent, God, forgive us. Lord, forgive us. Where we've been distracted, where we've been fearful, where we've been anxious, God, forgive us. God, we love you. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for the gift of salvation. And it is not by works that no man can boast. We know it's a gift today, God. We wanna, we wanna receive this gift and handle it the way you would want us to handle it, God, for your glory. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. 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 Praise God.